Hey, Pastor Justin here, and I want to welcome you to our verse-by-verse teaching through God's Word. We hope and pray that this is a huge resource to you, and it helps you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Also, want to encourage you, if this is your only place where you're being fed, go and be a part of the local church. We love being a part of your life, but it's no substitute for being a part and serving in the local church. Also, if this has blessed you, we would love to hear about it. There's an email that's listed below, and if you send us an email and just tell us how God's Word has changed your life, it would bless us tremendously. Also, would you pray and consider maybe helping us continue this ministry and getting God's Word all over the world? You can do that by going to newheightsohio.com and click on the Giving tab. Anything helps, and we appreciate it. God bless. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and a great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet. only you can do, would you speak to our hearts? God, would the truth of your text be loud and clear today? Take me, take me and put me to the side and make you, put you first and front, center. And God, we just pray that our lives would be transformed by the power of your word and your truth. In Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen. You may be seated. Man, if you're new here to New Heights Church, we really do want to welcome you. We're so excited you're here. With that being said, there are some really special guests here. Uh, Liz and I served in Assemblies of God World Missions for 10 years. And some of those years we lived in Thailand and we worked with Thailand. We got to work with some incredible, incredible missionaries. And one of those couples is here today. And I just want to say hi to my friends. So Josh and Tanya Jacks, they're missionaries that we support. Will you guys stand up? These are not just missionaries. These are really, really close and dear friends to Liz and I. And they got their son, their oldest son, Noah. Noah, welcome back to Ohio, buddy. We're going to make a Reds fan out of you. We love you guys, and they're going to have to leave a little early. They're so committed to church, they got to be somewhere at like 1130 to set up for all the district events that are happening tonight, but they're still here in church. Isn't that something? Hey, we love you guys. So when they walk out, ushers, don't think they're uh, not spiritual or that they're bored with my sermon. They just got to go do spiritual work. So, man, we're so excited to have you guys. Hey. We love, we love God's word here at New Heights Church so much that we preach verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter, book by book. And we are in the middle of the book of Acts and we are in chapter 4 and we're unpacking verses 32 through 37 today. And we're just excited that you're here, excited for what God is doing here as we continue to study this very important book in the New Testament. Now, today we're going to see the church not only scattered on mission but gathered together. We get an inside peek inside the huddle, so to speak, as to what God was doing inside the church that fueled what was happening outside the church. How many of you know that's how it works? What God does inside the church is supposed to affect what we do outside. I say it all the time. The most important ministry that takes place is not going to be here on Sunday. It's going to be outside of these doors Monday through Friday. We're very proud to be a Pentecostal church, but I don't care that you show me your Pentecostal in here. I want you to show me your Pentecostal out there. So the church is supposed to be reaching the community. We're supposed to be going out and being a light inside our community. So what happens inside the church is supposed to fuel what happens outside. And we get to see this today in our text. So 
Now, I know the church gets a lot of bad press uh, today, but the truth is that when the church functions the way that it's supposed to, there is nothing in the world like it. So today, we're going to see how the early church functioned as a community. And what I'm hoping today is that what we see is the key to the, the future is us recovering that sense, doing the fundamentals well, being a community that does life together, loving each other, being generous, serving, sharing our testimony together. Because all of this matters. And all of it we do together. 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 <laughs> One act of faithful service. One gospel conversation opportunity at a time. And here is something that you need to know about Christianity. The Christian life is a public life. It's not cloaked in secrecy or hidden deep within some some secret club. The Christian life is a public life. One of the ways our faith in Jesus is displayed to the outside world is through the visible fellowship of believers with one another. Right? Right? And one of the worst testimonies to the outside world is through the visible disunity of believers with one another. And unfortunately, in the world we live in today, there's so many different platforms that show our disunity. Sometimes we love to get on our social media platforms and just show how divided we really are. We love to nitpick each other and criticize each other. We love to go after each other. All about the, the small differences, right? Right? Philippians chapter 1, 27 through 2, 4, it's amazing. Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of, of that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and how, how uh, here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is Paul here, and and I'm preaching from Acts, I promise. But then again in verse 5 here in Philippians, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now look, there have always been issues in the church when it comes to unity. Always. There have always been divisions in the church, even going back to the New Testament. I I want you to understand, we're going to see a beautiful picture of unity, but all you got to do is read the book of Corinthians to understand that even the early church had problems when it came to unity. That's why Paul wrote so much about pursuing, preserving, protecting unity. He knew that unity is, is a product of love, and love is a product of humility, and humility is a profound virtue In fact, maybe the noblest of all Christian virtues because humility enables us to love sacrificially and sacrificial love is what creates unity, okay? And when I say unity, I don't want you to be confused because sometimes people get confused with the idea of unity. Today, churches will sometimes pursue unity the wrong way. And what some of you are thinking, well, Pastor Justin, what do you mean by the wrong way? The wrong way is anything that goes against what the Bible teaches, The wrong way is anything that goes against what the Bible teaches. The church can't pursue unity by dismissing doctrinal distinctives, okay, or by trying to smooth over some of the rough edges of the gospel message, you know, like the exclusivity of Jesus Christ or, you know, or or the reality of hell. Those efforts are going to build an appearance of unity, but they don't reflect the biblical model of church unity, which is a unity built around sound doctrine and the clear teaching of God's word. So don't, don't misunderstand what I'm talking about today when we talk about unity. To pursue unity at all costs defies the nature of biblical unity, which is grounded in the affirmation and the application of God's truth, and God's truth is God's word. We are all about doctrine here at New Heights Church. We are all about God's word, okay? Christian unity is the result of God bringing together people of different ethnicities, backgrounds, social classes, all into one family or the body by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says it again in Galatians. 
our unity, listen, our unity is powered by the Holy Spirit who unites us through the truth of God's word. The church here in our text was unified. They were unified around the gospel and was established on God's truth. That's the early church. So, you know, the book of Acts, it's amazing. It's amazing in so many ways. We see the church being led by the Holy Spirit. Even with barrier after barrier, the Holy Spirit overcomes them and the gospel goes forward. The gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea, all to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The church, led by the Holy Spirit, overcomes persecution from the outside and pressure from within. But I love, I love that Luke, who is so incredibly detailed and such a gifted historian and storyteller, is able to give us a picture of the gospel on the move and at the same time give us glimpses of the inner workings of the church. And both of them work powerfully together. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to unpack this verse. Look with me at verse 32. It says, now the full number of those who believed, and pause with me for a minute. We'll get through the verse, but I want to, I got to, I got to focus on something real quick. Now the full number of those who believed, who believed, underline that word, believing in Jesus, trusting in him for all you need, being satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus. That's the key. That's the root of what's happening in the story. Everything good comes from that, believing in Jesus, right? So it says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, I want you to know this unity is not conformity where everybody's exactly alike, okay? It's not an organizational unity either. It's not where everybody has to be forced into the same denomination. In fact, if you know your history at all, You know that some of the worst times in the church have been when everybody has has been part of one large organization, forced into one large organization. It's not that kind of unity. That's not not what Luke is talking about here. But I want you to take note of two things, okay? Two things that happen when you believe in Jesus. Here it is. Your heart is loosened in relationship to things and tightened in its relationship to people. Do you see that? This is what we read here in this first verse. When we believe Jesus, two things happen in our life. Look again here. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So this is the first thing that happens to us. Believing in Jesus tightens the heart, uh, heart's relationship to people, especially other Christians. When you become united to Jesus by faith, you become united to people by love. That's it. This is the gospel. I I don't understand why there's people who claim to be followers of Jesus and they can't love their fellow believers. I I don't get it. I don't understand. There are people who claim, I won't call them Christians. I'm going to say there are people who claim to be followers of Jesus who do nothing but cause division in churches by their gossip, by their criticism. They can't get along with people. And here, what Paul or what Luke is saying is that early church, their, they, they were, their heart was loosened to things, but it, was, it became strong with their love for people. Do you understand that? One of the signs of somebody who really truly loves Jesus is that they are going to have a spiritual ability to love. That's a spiritual, that's, that's the evidence of somebody who has said yes to Jesus. I'm going to love and get along with my fellow brothers and sisters. Okay? Now, look with me at number two. It says that now the full number of those who believe were one heart and soul. Okay, now here's the second thing that happens. And no one said that any of the things belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So there's the second thing or the second effect of believing or trusting in Jesus. First, the heart's tightened in its relationship to people. And the second thing that happens is the heart is loosened in its relationship to things. Okay, so faith in Jesus creates a bond of love to people and it cuts the bond of love to things. So remember, Luke is the guy who wrote Acts. We know that. If you read the Gospel of Luke, you're going to see a theme that's pretty consistent with Luke. And that theme that Luke hits over and over is this. He wants believers in Jesus to be free from the love of things. That's something Luke just hits over and over and over. He wants believers in Christ to be strong in their love for people, not things. And something that we're going to see over and over in the Bible is that it's pretty hard to have both. It's pretty hard to love things and, and love people at the same time. 
To have a love for people and to have a love for things, that's difficult. Because think about it. If your heart's united in love to people, then you, you won't care so much about things because things will, will have only value as, mean, as means of loving people. I know, I'm preaching something really hard right now. I'm not telling you you can't have things either, by the way. Don't, don't put those words in my mouth. That's not what I'm, I'm not telling you you can't have a, a boat and a nice car. I like all that stuff. There's nothing wrong with having things. But as you love people, that's more valuable to you than any possession you could have, right? I mean, that's what this text is all about. It isn't about communism, by the way. Luke's painted us a picture of a community of people whose hearts have been totally uh, restructured by believing in Jesus. And now all of a sudden, they care about people so much they have lost their sense of ownership. Everything that God's blessed them with is a way for them to bless others. Isn't that something? You know, going with Luke's theme, he, he talks about this in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 32 through 33. It's interesting. I'm going to read this to you. Just remember, it's the same author. In, in Luke chapter 12, verse 32 through 33, he says this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with the treasure in in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. This is exactly what they're doing here in Acts chapter 4. And it, it was not because they were being told to. They weren't being forced to. In fact, as, as we go further in this story, we're going to see that Peter actually indicates the opposite. We're going to read about Ananias and Sapphira, and, and, and you should see Peter's response because it indicates that they weren't being forced to do this. They're living like this because they believe God's word. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see, faith in God's promises, and if you don't know this, his promises are all throughout your Bible. In fact, 2,000 promises of God in your Bible. You don't know the promises of God. Read your Bible. Man, I want to know all the promises of God so they can apply to my life. Over 2,000 promises from God in the Bible. Faith in God's promises will release you from fear. Fear produces anxiety. Anxiety can lead to social isolation, clinical depression. It can impair a person's ability to work, study, do routine activities. Anxiety can wreak havoc on relationships with friends, family, colleagues. And like I said, oftentimes anxiety is going to lead to depression. Faith in God's promises leads to freedom from these things. And then to freedom for people and freedom for love. That's powerful. Verse 33, it says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So we see their loving unity. And now we see, in their, we see something else. We see their strong preaching. Powerful preaching was going on among those people and out from that church. Let me tell you something. That church wasn't afraid to preach the truth. They received the power of the Holy Spirit that was promised, promised in Acts 1.8. And they're, they're now living in power and they were powerfully proclaiming Jesus Christ. Here's the truth. The truth is that this community of believers were too busy loving each other, too busy sharing with each other, too busy preaching the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to waste their time with trivial disagreements or silly gossip or criticism or divisiveness, self-will, self-gratification, and self-glory. They were too busy doing God's work to get involved in any of that stuff. A sign that a church is full of the Holy Spirit is their testimony. Our testimony is powerful when, we're, when we are too busy with God's mission to argue about all the stupid stuff. I hear a lot, about, a lot about the evidence of someone being baptized in the Holy Spirit. I'm Assemblies of God minister, so I hear about it a lot. But I'm telling you, the, as I read the Bible, the biggest proof that someone's been baptized in the Holy Spirit is their ability to go out and live a powerful testimony. I mean it, Right? The early church didn't have any time or energy to spend on trivial and passing and mundane things. They just didn't. They were too busy with God's mission. It says the apostles were giving their testimony. This is in the imperfect text here. It expresses an obligation. But here's the thing. It's an obligation, but it's, it's also something they do because they want to. 
They want to. They had established a priority. The priority was love one another and be united in fellowship together and to proclaim Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And that desire, that desire was bigger than any other desire that they had. And that is what we're aiming for as a church. You see, when we come together as a church, all of us are different. All of us are very, very different. It's, it's easy in the Western world to pick a church based on the pastor's personality. Because that's just kind of how we've set up things in the West. You know, we'll build these churches around, around uh, these celebrities or their, these superstars. And then it becomes easy to say, I don't like this pastor. He's too short. I don't like how he brushes his hair. I don't like the pants he wears. I'm going to go to this other church. Here's the truth. We're all different. And, and the great thing, did you know New Heights Church that we've grown in the last two years? Somebody give God some glory. We are growing as a church. That's amazing. And here's the best part. It has nothing to do with your pastor. It is everything to do with we have come together as a church and we said we're going to glorify God. We're going to make God number one. This church belongs to God. We want him glorified. We want him famous. We don't want our own egos uh, to become something that people look at. We, we just want Jesus famous, right? And so we've, we've got people from all over. And I, I don't know if you've noticed, but behind us right now is a Spanish service going on. And did you know we haven't been below 50 since we launched on Easter? Come on, somebody. We're going to build this church. We've got different nationalities and different cultures, and we want to build this church with different age groups, people who come from all different walks of life. But we come together. We could set aside our differences when it comes to culture, our preference for music, our style. And we're coming together because we are on a mission to see Jesus glorified in Cincinnati and all over the world. And that desire is more important than anything else. And that's why we can come together, right? That's our priority. That's what the early church did. They established that as their priority. And I love the latter part of this verse. It says, and great grace was upon them all. Lord, let your great, incredible grace be upon us. This is another way of saying God was pouring out blessing. Don't you want blessing? Grace simply means God's favor. They were being incredibly blessed with God's favor. They were infused at God's great grace for them, and so they became gracious to others. You cannot be in touch with the gospel and not become incredibly generous. The rest of the passage is just examples of their giving. Read with me in verse 34. It says, there was not a needy person among them. Don't just read right by that. I mean, think about that. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, that's a good name to have, isn't it? A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. It isn't just a generic description here in these verses. Luke gives us very specific illustrations of Christians who considered all the things that they had as gods. They didn't believe that anything they had was really their own. And when it became pretty obvious that these other people had needs, they went out and sold land and then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was, the, it was for the distribution of the apostles. And remember, he was happy to do this. He didn't need to determine the ultimate end of the money. He wasn't concerned with where it went. All he wanted to do was give it. And so that's exactly what he did. His name was Joseph, and he was a Levite. Now that's kind of interesting, because you remember the tribe of Levi was a priestly family, and the priest couldn't own any land. So you can already begin to see the passing of the old covenant ways. He was a Levite. He owned land. Here is a man in the Levite heritage who owns a piece of land. And furthermore, his name was Joseph, but it become, became Barnabas. Barnabas, like I said, was probably a nickname. He was such an encourager. He was, he was, this, uh, he was so much of an encourager that it became something he was known for. He was the kind of guy who was strong in faith. He was full of faith. And if you read in Acts chapter 11, it describes him even more. It says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Man, that's what we should be known for. They should be able to say that. I, I hope one day, if, there's a lot of things people can say about me, but I hope one day that that's on the list. Justin was full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. 
Barnabas was a man known for his comfort. He was a man known for his exhortation. He was a counselor. He was somebody who could get along, come alongside people and change their life by his influence and by his teaching. That's powerful. She didn't know that, man. We all need a Barnabas. Somebody who could come along and do life with somebody and you're a better person because of it. He shines as one of the most mature, reliable, lovable leaders of the early church. And his ministry begins right here in Acts chapter 4. It began because he had freedom from the love of things and a heart of love for the poor. He sold his field. He gave all the proceeds to the apostles. He had a love for people that was stronger than his love for things. Now, I, this is the first, I've been here three years and I've never once preached on giving. And I'm not about to preach it. You've got to give all your money and lay it at the pastor's feet for him to decide what he's going to do with it. <laughs> that's because that's not from this text either. But here's, here's the main idea of this text. When you, when you come to Jesus, you give your life to Jesus, your love of things becomes less, your love for people becomes greater. You love people much more than you love things. And I want to talk just a minute about uh, giving and possessions because we, we see it here in our text, okay? There always seems to be two extremes when it comes to how Christians view their relationship with their possessions. The first one is that God wants 10%, what we often call the tithe, right? And this is based on an Old Testament principle that the first 10% of what God gives us goes back to him. And for this group, after you've paid your tithe, you're essentially, you've essentially fulfilled your duty and you can do whatever you want with the rest. It's like a God tax, right? After you pay it once, you're done. Okay, I paid my tithe, I'm done. The rest of my money is for me to decide what I want to do. And, and the, the other end are, are those who constantly feel guilty no matter how much they do give. Because they assume that as long as there are poor and lost people in the world, God's only purpose for their money is to get the gospel to them. All right? Now, I want you to know, know that both of those are out of balance. We don't have to choose from, from these two extremes, Okay? The Bible doesn't give us a universal rule. The Bible teaches us to view our possessions through a set of principles that we should hold in tension. And any one of these principles, listen, any one of these principles taken alone are going to lead you out of balance. And there are, there are times when obedience means leaning into one principle more than others. But as a general rule, if Christians can hold all of, I'm about to give you seven of these principles, if, you can, if Christians can hold all seven of these principles in reverent tension, it's going to help them fulfill what God, uh, the will of God in regard to their money. Money is important. Time and time again, we read about in the Bible. Time and time again, the Bible associates our money with our commitment to and our relationship with the Lord, right? I mean, the Bible talks a whole lot about giving. And what, what is giving? What does that actually mean? Well, the word, the word give has been defined as to make a present of. So one of the many ways we can give to others is to give financially. Through giving, the early church helped one another. They invested in what God was accomplishing. Sadly, the concept of giving has become distorted today in many of our churches. And uh, the sad thing about that is our giving is vitally connected to who we are. So it's important. So I can't just, I can't just cruise by these verses without talking about uh, giving. And so today, I do want to talk about the principles of tithing real quick. Uh, like I just said, old, tithing's an Old Testament law. So there's a, always these questions, well, then do I have to tithe? Do I have to give? Um, old Testament law required God's people to give 10% of their income, which, which could in those days include flocks, herds, uh, crops. Liz and I served on the mission field. We were in one place where, you know, farmers would bring in 10% of of their, uh, their crop. I, I saw that in, in some of the churches we were a part of. Uh, this 10% was known as a tithe, okay? And in addition to the tithe, God's people were required to give offerings to the Lord for the care of the temple and the salaries of the priests. So in the days of Israel, tithing was not voluntary. Not, it wasn't a voluntary thing. You, you gave, you had to. It was demanded as a form of taxation. Now, the question, like I said, for a lot of people is tithing for today. Isn't this, isn't this tithing an Old Testament thing? It's an Old Testament law, right? Aren't we free from the law? Uh, well, my, question, or my answer to that question is yes and no. Okay, yes and no. Tithing is a part of the law, and, and don't get me wrong, Jesus definitely fulfilled it in all our places so that we are free from its bondage. We are free from the bondage of the law. However, listen to me, however, the purposes of the law were generally speaking threefold, okay? Number one, to show us what God was like. 
Number two, to reveal how far short we fall of God's character. And then number three, to show us how to thrive in the creation God has placed us in. All right? Those were the purposes of the law originally. And none of those three purposes faded with the death of Jesus. So if anything, Jesus' coming intensified them. Right? We saw more of what God was like, what holiness was like, and what a man acting in perfect harmony with creation was like. Now, as it relates to the tithe, the law reveals the unchanging character of God and how he expects us to view the money he provided for us. Right? So a minimum of 10% that he's given to us, whether we're rich or poor, is to go back into his work. And this is how we're to set up world order. This is, this is why the tithe principle is taught pre-law, by the way. The tithe principle was taught before the law, before Abraham, before the law of Moses, post-exile, post-after Malachi, even affirmed under Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. God's purposes for creation haven't changed. All right, so we're no longer under the um, theocratic nation state of Israel, but how God has set up his economy for his people has not changed, has not changed. We need to remember that the law was given to help people live in the, in the peace of God. That's why the law, you know, principles like taking a Sabbath and the tithe has an enduring effect. All right? The, the principles still apply to us. That's why we, we still teach from the law. That's why I still will preach from the Old Testament, right? The idea of the 10% of all that God gives to you is given to you to give back to him remains a pretty good start when it comes to giving. I think the tithe is a pretty good start. You want to know, hey, how much should I give to God? Where should I start? Start with the tithing principle. 10% of what you make every year goes back to God. Uh, for those of us who have been touched by God's grace and we have, we've experienced his mercy, his mercy, tithing should never be the ceiling of our giving, but it should be the floor. All right? Dr. J.B. Uh, Gabriel made this observation. He says, it's unthinkable from the standpoint of the cross that anyone would give, would give less under grace than the Jews gave under law. Think about that. It's unthinkable from the standpoint of the cross that anyone would give, give less under grace than the Jews gave under the law. Why would we want to do less? I mean, the person who's saying, do I have to? They're getting off to the wrong start immediately. <laughs> Everything is greater in the, the new covenant. Everything. We have better promises, a better covenant. Hebrews says, why wouldn't there be better sacrifice? Why wouldn't there be better giving? All right? Now, I want to give you seven principles. We're going to end with this. Seven principles taken from, these are taken from Pastor J.D. Greer. He wrote an article on this, and I love it. These seven principles, so powerful. Ready? Number one, Jesus' generosity is the model for our own. So Paul tells the Corinthian believers that ultimately they should think about how much Jesus has given up for them and respond accordingly. Well, you guys, think about this. <laughs> how much has Jesus given up for us? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, said, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So that's the model for you and me today. Jesus did not merely tithe his blood. After all, he gave it all, 100% of it. He didn't tithe his blood. That means our responsibility is not just to give our 10% and go in our self-serving way. No, but to offer 100% of our lives back to Jesus and pour out our lives recklessly for him and for other people because Jesus is our example and that's what he did for us. Where would you be without Jesus? at exactly the same place people in the world are without you. Jesus wants all of you. All of you. People can't be saved until they hear about the gospel, and it's only through our giving and going that they're going to hear. I'm okay giving more than 10% to that cause. I really am. I'll start with 10%, but I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm sure glad Jesus didn't tithe 10% of his blood. Number two, here's the second principle. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. In fact, he is glorified when we enjoy them. This is a, this is a quote from really 1 Timothy 6, 17, where Paul reminds his readers that God delights to take care of his children. The whole Bible talks about God's abundance towards his creation, towards his children. We misstep when we begin to ascribe to God the concept of uh, scarcity. Uh, 
not having a whole lot. Because maybe Jesus was poor, but ironically, he also lived out of abundance. Now listen to me. Because in the Bible, we see critics accused him of being a glutton. They accused him of being a drunk. We know Jesus wasn't a glutton. He wasn't a drunk. But the reason they said it was that Jesus loved a good feast. Right? <laughs> I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. Luke 7, chapter, Luke chapter 7, verse 34. It, it shows you Jesus loved a good feast. He liked to have a good time. In fact, biblical scholar Robert Karras points out that at just about every point in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either coming from a meal, going to a meal, or at a meal. So church, let me tell you something. That is why my second office is at Skyline Chili because I am a man of God's word, okay? They know me at Skyline. They know my name. I'm just fulfilling the Bible here. Come on. WWJD, what would Jesus do? Skyline. He'd be converting all those people at Skyline, I promise you. Paul said that he himself knew how to live with plenty. He knew how to live with little, right? Philippians 4.12. Through 13 says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Sometimes Christians are really good at doing one of those, but not the other. But Paul, Paul is saying that in Christ, you can be faithful in both. You can be faithful with plenty and you can be faithful with little. So whatever your financial situation is today, maybe you're rolling in the money right now. You don't need to feel guilty about that. God has blessed you. God has blessed you, and that's amazing. God wants to bless you so you can bless others. That's, that's a principle we see over and over. God must trust you with the money that he's, he's allowed you to make. He must trust you that you're going to give accordingly. If you are not making a whole lot, guess what? God has blessed you too. Yeah. Amen? It's, it's funny. Here's number three. This, God gives us excess so we can share it with others. Leads right to number three. I just said it. God gives us excess so we can share it with others. Did you know during the Israelites' wilderness journey, God covered the ground every single morning with bread from heaven? There was so much of it that everyone could eat till they were totally full. But, listen to this. Don't, don't read past this. The next time you read this story, look into this. It went bad every night. Every night it went bad. So, so if, if they tried to stockpile to make sure they had enough for the next day, it would be bad. Man, I love, <laughs> I love me some Skyline at night. And here's what I do. Liz is not happy about this because it smells up the whole house. I will order two five ways. I will eat one at night and I will put one in the fridge for breakfast. <laughs> I know. <laughs> they couldn't do that. They couldn't stockpile. They couldn't take manna and keep it for the next day. It would go bad. And one of the reasons God made the manna go bad every day was to discourage them from accumulating or hoarding. Those who collected, listen, those who collected more were responsible to share with those who collected less. God provides for us in the same way today by giving us everything we need and sometimes more than we need. And according to Paul... The primary reason for God giving us success is not to increase our standard of living, but our standard of giving. A few of you are happy about it. <laughs> the primary reason God gives us, gives us success is not to increase our standard of living, but, to our, but our standard of giving. That's powerful. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 14 through 15. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Come on, people. These are good principles here. So to those who God has blessed, and truthfully, I believe that's everyone here this morning, by the way. Everyone here this morning, we have been blessed. Go look at statistics around the world. Everybody here, even if we're living in poverty in America, we are more blessed than most of the, most of the world. And so to those who God has blessed, we, we should give freely to those with little. Number four, it can be wise to build wealth. Yep, I said it. If you held this principle alone and not in tension with the others, it could lead to hoarding wealth. And sometimes the Bible obviously condemns that. We see that in James chapter 5. But God gives clear instructions in passages like Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 through 10. Um, uh, chapter 6, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 21. That it's wise. Listen, that it's wise to save and invest. He commands it. In fact, he even rewards it. 
saving money and building wealth can actually increase your ability to be generous later. Jesus himself commands wise investments. He says, for instance, in the parable of the talents, he praises the man to whom he gave five talents who then turned it into ten. There's, while there's no sin, and listen, this is important too, while there's no sin in building wealth, God is also looking at how you use your talents to serve him and others. What's your motive behind investing? Number five, listen, treasures in heaven are better than treasures on earth. Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 20, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. He used this as an example. Having a lot of material wealth on earth, listen, this is something J.D. Greer said, and I love it. Uh, Having a lot of material wealth on earth is like possessing a bunch of Confederate money at the end of the Civil War. Wow. Wow. When he said it that way, it's like, yep. Having a lot of material wealth on earth is like possessing a bunch of Confederate money at the end of the Civil War. Listen, we can't use our wealth in heaven. We can use it here. We can make an investment that's going to affect our reward in heaven. That's pretty incredible. You know that soon all all our currency is about to be worthless. So logic tells us that we should be trading in as much of it as we can for something we can keep, right? I mean, isn't that the best investment of all? Everything you store here on earth is about to be worthless. You can't take any of it with you to heaven, but you can send it on ahead by investing in people. When you realize this, you'll stop asking, how much do I have to give? And instead you're going to ask, how much of this can I go ahead and transfer into eternity? Number six, look to God, not money, as your primary source of security and significance. A lot of people give money uh, first place in their hearts because they look to it for security and significance. But in Matthew 6, Jesus says to find those things first in God. In God. And when we do that, we're going to start to notice that God gets first place. And sometimes even the biggest portion in our budget, uh, God's going to get. We'll set limits on both spending and saving so we can invest in the kingdom of God. I've met businessmen who God has blessed tremendously and they literally put God first, always. They will look every month, they come and they look at their finances and they're going to determine how much they give God. I've heard pastors say you're, the biggest check you should ever write should be to the kingdom of God every month. Um, and and here, here's the thing, I don't like to set rules because there's no rules in the Bible. He's just giving principles to give by and that's going to look different in everybody's life. But I, again, whatever God is speaking to you about, you, you you should be using your wealth to build God's kingdom. I think if you were looking at your life and saying, well, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm jumping to the next principle. <laughs> so I'm jumping too quick. We're going we're gonna to live sufficiently and we're going to give extravagantly. Rather than living extravagantly and giving sufficiently. That should be the goal of everybody who calls himself a follower of Jesus. It's not about paying the 10% God tax and moving on. We're more often than not looking at giving that way sometimes. We kind of look at it like tipping sometimes. We look at our giving like a tip. You know, tip, tipping is something you have to do. We get it. That's the kind of thing you do when you go to a restaurant. The server is depending on it. We know. If you're a bad tipper, shame on you. Okay, I paid for Bible college based on those tips. I worked as a server. I worked on a train. I worked as a tour director. Those guys get paid little and they work really hard. If you're a follower of Jesus, be gracious with your tips, okay? Especially on a Sunday after church, they know you're coming from church. Bless them. Go out and give 20%, not 15. Okay. Sometimes we look at giving to God like that tip, you know? Man, I got to give my 10% and move on. But listen to me, God doesn't want to be tipped. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be worshipped as number one in your life and best in your life. Don't, don't, look, at, don't look at giving as, a, as tipping, you know. I'm tipping Jesus. It's all God's. Remember that. Number seven, follow the Holy Spirit. All right, let the Holy Spirit guide you into what role you should take and what sacrifices you're to make. The, the Holy Spirit says how you're going to know what God wants from you. Not me. I can't tell you what 
to give. And I can't judge you. I can't criticize you. I can't look and say, well, you make this much money and you should be giving this. That's not my job, nor is it anybody else in this room. That, that belongs to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to tell you what you should be giving and how much you should be giving. All right? The Holy Spirit is how you know what God wants from you. The mission's too big for any one person. Let's be honest with each other. The mission is too big. The mission's too big for New Heights Church even, right? So many good causes to give to, to build God's kingdom. I get this all the time. You know, one of the most stressful things of pastoring New Heights Church is, is I get all these requests from all these different missionaries, and there's no bad request. All these wonderful missionaries are doing incredible things. All these different organizations to give to that are doing these incredible things. How am I supposed to know which one to give? How is our board supposed to pick and choose and decide what ministry we're going to invest into and what we, what we won't? Because we can't give to all of them. We, can, we, can just, we just can't do it. We can't give to every missionary or, or every ministry. And God hasn't called our church to support everything. And that's why we and you need the Holy Spirit. Just like all these other principles I've already mentioned, this principle by itself, it's insufficient because you can use it to justify a selfish lifestyle too. Well, actually, Pastor Justin, the Holy Spirit hasn't really put anything on my heart, so I guess I won't give this year. The Holy Spirit just hasn't given me a mount. I'm not going to make a faith promise. I'm not going to give to missions because I just don't really feel like the Holy Spirit's telling me a number. Listen, you have to join this principle to the other ones, okay? The Spirit only guides a heart that's overflowing with a love for Jesus and is very, and I emphasize, very eager to give to others. I mean, that's what we're seeing in our text today with Barnabas. Uh, he was very eager as, because Jesus had given him so much. He was eager to give. Now, if that's our heart, then the Spirit is going to, and I mean it. He is going to guide us when it comes to giving. So if the Holy Spirit hasn't led us to give, then I'm not sure we're willing or eager to give or, or that we're just not listening. And then the question is, how much do I give? After all these principles, we, we still have those who are still thinking that. How much do I give? All right, Pastor Justin, you're pushing for, for something, right? No, I'm not. I'm not pushing for anything. Some of you are saying, I know it's coming. How much does he want? How much should I give? Wouldn't it be nice if I could just give you a number? But that's not how the Bible works. Again, the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you, lead you, and guide you. The only thing, these are primary questions to ask, and I'll end with this. Is God getting your first and best? What does your giving say about what is first in your heart? Can I just use a personal example? We'll, we'll close with this. I love being honest and transparent with you guys. I have no problem showing my weaknesses. Um, I remember I was a Central Bible College student and working to pay off school, and I would work really, really hard. Uh, I would go up to Alaska because I had no academic scholarship. Even though like 98 point something percent of the school was on academic scholarship or some type of scholarship, I was not. They couldn't find anything for me, like nothing. <laughs> you talk about, never mind. <laughs> So that's okay, I'm gonna work, I'm cold, I'm working, I'm working in Alaska, I work really hard, and I'd make, I'd make enough to pay off my school bill, which was always the most depressing day of the year when I had to write that check out and hand it to Central Bible College. And then I would have money left over, and uh, again, I, I grew up with not a whole lot of money. I started working when I was nine years old as a paper boy, and I started paying for my own clothes, all of that stuff at nine years of age. And so money was... It, scarce for me you know like when I when I had some and working at Alaska after paying that bill I'd have this chunk of money left and and I'm a big sports fan if you haven't noticed kind of like it a lot even the Reds although it's killing me and I had decided I I am going to buy uh, a package to go up and watch I think it was the Kansas City Royals because uh, I didn't care to watch the Cardinals even before I lived in Cincinnati, couldn't do it. Uh, anything with St. Louis Cardinals is just expensive toilet paper to me. And I had decided I'm going to use this money and I'm going to buy these tickets. My, you know, I only went to like four sports games growing up and they were in the nosebleeds. That's all dad could afford. I finally have this money and that's what I'm going to do. I wanted to invest it. And doggone it, I went to a missions convention at Central Assembly of God. 
And I sat there and I listened to this sermon. I had on hold, I had these tickets. I was so excited. I was telling my friend next to me what I had just done. There's two of them. I'm going to bring you to some of these games. This is awesome. Can't wait. And I go to this missions convention and I was already given my 10%. And I actually had already filled out a faith promise. And then that night, God tells me to give to this, this missionary couple that was serving in the Middle East. And man, I'm telling you, I was so so mad I got up and went to the bathroom hoping to shake it off that God wouldn't keep speaking to me and uh, maybe my heart would get calloused while I was in the bathroom didn't happen I came back and I did give the rest of that money ended up giving the rest of that too to this missionary now here's what's amazing God likes a cheerful giver so I remember doing that, and I went back. My dad was sitting on the TV. I got back. He was watching some television. I told him what I did, and thinking I would get a pat on the back. And he said, well, it means nothing with your attitude. <laughs> dad. But I, I got what he was saying. And I prayed. I went in my room, and I prayed and asked the Lord for forgiveness. And I was excited that I gave. You want to know what's funny? Do you know as... The pastor of New Heights Church, do you know how many times I get asked to go out to games? See, it's funny to some people, but it was big to me. More than giving the money away was giving the chance to sit and watch those games. That's how much of a sports fan I am. That's how much I loved it. Did you know, as a pastor of New Heights Church, how many games I've attended at the Cincinnati Reds, the Cincinnati Bengals, Bearcats, the, uh, Kentucky? Uh, uh, I mean, I have been, I've gone to so many games. Here's what I'm saying. It's just amazing. It was like giving that. I'm not telling you to give to give. Please. Listen to me, don't give to get in return. I'm not telling you that. When I gave, I didn't think I'd ever go to games. I thought I was giving it up. But I'm telling you, God is so stinking good and amazing. And when we don't hold on to something, when we release it to God, it's amazing the blessings. I have only paid for maybe four games my entire time in Cincinnati. And, and even as a missionary, it was so funny. Guess what the pastors, Pastor uh, Jack Hembry in St. Louis, heard that I was a big baseball fan. He gave me tickets. His brother goes to our church, by the way, Dr. Hembry. His brother blessed me and my wife and my two kids. We were like right in the front row. Best seats I have ever had. And I'm telling you, God had just blessed me over and over and over. We give because we want to. We give because it's the best investment ever. I give again, even if I never got invited to a game ever again. I'd give because it's worth the investment. It's worth the sacrifice. My question to you is, are you giving God your best? That's, that's my question. What, what does your money reveal about what you love and trust the most? I almost chose to love sports more than God. It was hard for me. Some of you are just probably thinking, wow, he is so unspiritual. Maybe, but you all have your own thing too, right? But have you surrendered all of your resources, all your resources to the Holy Spirit? And have you listened to his voice? If you take all seven principles into account, I believe you're going to find yourself living sufficiently and giving extravagantly. Use these principles as a roadmap and let the Holy Spirit guide you to radical generosity. Father, we love you and praise you and worship you. Lord, we recognize that every good gift is from you. And we are blessed, truly blessed. Some of us are, are, are the richest people in this whole world, even though our bank accounts wouldn't show it. We are so blessed. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to look at our life today, that we would, we would start to love people more than things. That we would start to look at our life, how much, how much can I give and invest to see people uh, have the chance and the opportunity to know you as their Lord and Savior. Put that desire in all of our hearts. And I pray you continue to bless us. Give us wisdom when it comes to investing our money. Let us be good stewards of what you have given to us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.